This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmood from Scottsdale, Arizona. This is your co-host Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. I'm Melissa Reali Elliott from Orlando, Florida. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been way, 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 way overdue. So let's get to know you a little bit for our audience sake. Could you tell us at a very high level about what you're doing these days and what are you working on? Well, these days I'm involved in a lot of things. And I think as with many in our industry, yourselves included, we all wear a number of hats, as I found. We're all involved in a number of projects. So primarily I am the content marketing manager for DC Blocks. We're a Southeast-based co-location provider, but also doing some really interesting work in landing dark fiber routes. We recently opened a cable landing station. So I get to tell our great story and start to message all of the good things that we're doing. In addition, I also run a column for Mission Critical Magazine, the data-centered column. And then when I can, help out other groups like Nomad Futurist. Yes, so thanks for being one of our ambassadors and our voice out in the field. So just for our audience sake, Melissa, you were on the manufacturing end as well with Kohler and ABB. What were your roles there in those organizations? So I've always focused on technical marketing. That's been my background and areas of education for a couple of decades now. And so with both ABB and Kohler, I really focused more on the power distribution side of things. And it was just a wealth of knowledge. When I was at ABB, I heard from a product marketing focus where I covered all of our, I'll call medium voltage power distribution products, which served a number of markets, including utilities, offer power distribution, oil and gas, and all these other industries street verticals, but I gradually narrowed that area of support to the data center space, moved into some media relations roles. And then when I joined, I 100% switched over to their data center solutions team. I also got into other areas of support. Like we also, separate from power distribution and transmission products, we then stuff that sits in the gray space, like your switch gear. We also had a utility division at the time. So we worked a lot with the utilities on getting power to the data center in the first place. And we had industrial automation. We actually, I really wished they'd ever hooked up their robotics division into the data center space. That would have been super cool to support. And then when I moved to Kohler, it was all backup power generation. But I really wanted to take all of the industry experiences that I had, all of the connections, all of that work, and transition to a white space provider. What's amazing is, that was like a mic drop moment, white space provider. It's rare that we get, we've had a couple of people join us on the podcast that were on the kind of marketing end of it. And I love it because I think it's a superpower to like bridge the gap between the engineering mind and the ability to communicate and articulate, which is fascinating. Did you always want to get into the engineering space? Was that your goal from the get-go? I might call it a goal in the Orlando area. And I'll say I grew up with a lot of engineering in my family within the Orlando area. Obviously, everybody knows the biggest employer here is Disney, right? So it's a very creative. Never heard of them. What do they do? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the second largest employer here is actually Lockheed Martin. There's a huge aerospace and tanks hub here. I think at some point, every single person in my family, my sister's family, my best friend growing up, so everybody works at Lockheed. If you live in the Orlando area at some point or another. So that technical background has always been here. 
And there's kind of a burgeoning software development area of focus. So even when I was in college, my first salaried marketing position was at a software developer. And there was a huge gaming presence here in Orlando. So technical marketing has always kind of been a facet here in the Orlando area. And it's great to see that that's growing now with data centers coming into the space. But marketing, the technical world has always just been a niche because there is a need to translate engineering data and make it more approachable, more digestible. And I do think that it's something that our industry, while we have some marketers in the space, there's not there's always a balance. Not all have been trained in traditional marketing and they come at it from an engineering side or they're marketers with little technical background. And so bridging those two is absolutely critical. So having grown up with influence around you with all the technology, how did you end up picking marketing? I mean, I would have imagined like with all the technical knowledge and activities around you, it would have leaned you more towards, okay, I want to be a rocket scientist. Or the entire other direction. I want to be an artist. Screw you engineers. Yeah. So how did you end up picking marketing and specializing in the technical field? It's interesting. I kind of always knew marketing was where I was called. Even I think at 13, I would watch movies about advertising and get into them. And so when I went into college, I knew it was probably something in that realm. And the funniest experience I had in making sure that that was the right path, my first marketing class, I was studying for the very first test and pouring over my notes. And we had this digital test center that you had to drive to and take your tests at. And so it's a Friday night and I've driven home from work where, as I said, I already was doing marketing work while in college. And I'm sitting in the parking lot, flipping through notes and trying to get completely prepared for this. When it occurs to me, this testing center closes early on Friday nights. You have minutes left and this is the last day you can take this. And I took off running. And I walked in and explained, hey, I know you're closing soon. And they looked at me and they said, this test has 96 questions. You have 16 minutes. <laughs> My fault. So and that, I sat that was down. the first time of AI, right? So. Well, yeah, that was, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't cheat that system. But, but I sat down and as I was going through these questions on your core marketing basics, the true test wasn't just the material. I wound up of the 96 questions, I missed two in 16 minutes. And I knew this is what I'm called to do. This is an intuition. I think you can even read 96 questions in 16 minutes. My God, it's like, maybe you should have been an auctioneer. Like just, uh, <laughs> well, I can't talk that I can't speak that fast, but no, I knew that the basics of marketing were there and that they were wired in. But I also paired my degree because a lot of marketing training traditionally sort of pushed you a little bit in the direction of sales, which just isn't my personality by nature. But so I paired that degree with those in economics and psychology because I really wanted to be able to use that marketing knowledge to study how trends influence both micro and macro level of people so that I could create the best campaigns. I could be always watching for the latest content, the latest topic that I needed to tie into. And I think that that's where marketing really excels and where sometimes our industry forgets marketing, it leads with empathy. It has to always have its finger on the pulse of what the latest trend is and be tied in and be able to talk about it and make sure that their customers are getting the products represented that they need to learn about. It makes the entire industry better if we get the right product, the right people. 
I love that initial thought that you had. We say it all the time here that 90% of what you do, no matter what it is, whether it's operations or engineering or marketing, is psychology. And to know at such a young age that having some level of understanding of psychology will help you succeed no matter what. Because at the end of the day, notwithstanding the coming wave of AI, I don't want to get uh, notes from everyone saying people are going to be so passe in the coming months. But a lot of those personality traits are actually going to be built into AI also because it's people that are training these machines, right? Did you just come up with that concept or is that something that you learned through experience or is that a lesson from a parent or something? How do you recognize that psychology was going to be such an important driver in your success? Well, it was sitting back and thinking through the ways that people process information, the ways that we motivate them are very different. It's different whether it's an individual and whether it's a group, a uh, small or large group. And just knowing that that is the ultimate goal with the different types of marketing, that is the goal is to influence a purchasing decision and just to better understand and connect with the people who might use a product. So I'll say it was strategic and I didn't want to have filler classes for electives. I really wanted them to serve an ultimate purpose that helped me do my job better. Marketing as science. You're more engineer than people might assume from a marketing role. I walk a fine line. Yeah. <laughs> so you get done with the marketing degree and I see that you started a GPS firm. That was fun. It was called iGPS. It was actually a logistics provider. They did intelligent shipping platforms. So these were RFID enabled. And at the time we were the largest purchaser of RFID technology, second to the DOD. So this was at the forefront of the transition to the internet of things. And anybody who worked in the space at the time knows logistics was the first test case for connected devices. And I can still remember, I think it was 2011, holding a press conference about how we were tied to the internet of things and everybody standing around saying, what is this term? And we were using it back in the day before it became a common reference. So that was really groundbreaking. It also introduced me to a lot of the areas of sustainability because they really approached shipping and logistics from a sustainable approach. Things were lighter and more durable for shipping than, than wooden counterparts. So that background took me through a lot of connected devices and a deeper study of how those all connect and talk to each other. Some of them were intelligent and would call home intelligently if something went awry with the shipment. And from there, I did actually have a small stint at a data center doing some data processing. And that was really kind of my intro to the industry before I moved into the power distribution space. So what was that turning point that you said, okay, I'm going to get away from global positioning system? Of course, that's an element of the data infrastructure space and be more technical and tactical at the facilities, utilities, and the operational level. How did you make that transition? It was really just time and, and availability of the positions that were out there. But ABB did give me a really great home. They had good camaraderie and there were so many areas you could dive into. It was really like you could pick your career path and what industry. I honestly almost went into smart homes instead of data centers when given the choice. There was a decision point and uh, data centers just felt like home. 
But I think there's something to be said about the people and the career paths that we find ourselves navigating as we've stepped into the space. I know we, a lot of us talk about we never intended to get into the data center space and some people did, but the majority found their way here. And I think it speaks to the resilience of the people that we have in this space that they got in and said, whoa, this is kind of a sink or swim sort of space and I'm either all in and I love it. Or I'm going to find myself something else that I can navigate and manage a little bit more. So I really think that this spirit, this tenacity, this grit to perform and to face a lot of challenges, this is wired into the people that find themselves here. And it's kind of like an athlete's mentality. We get up every day willing to keep trying and try again and always be willing to be the best version and rewrite that. I wonder if there's ever been someone else that's ever correlated a data center personnel to an athlete. I just think that we don't necessarily get enough credit for the athletes that we are as a data center community. Well, if you Um, think about everybody has something we're doing outside of work. And if you really get to know all the people here, almost every one of us has some sort of high adventure athletic drive because we have to channel that there's no doubt it's a unique corollary again this freaking psychology degree it's just so helpful and and there is that economic element to it as well if you're an athlete you get larger contracts and all spoken from a former athlete what a coincidence what a coincidence i think that putting those two things together the fact that the people that are in this industry have kind of found it and then like taking it as their own is such an interesting way of trying to create a personality profile of who is the right fit. Because I think we talk about this all the time, right? Grandparents, I grew up in a fairly traditional kind of Jewish background, right? My grandparents were like, you have to be a lawyer or a doctor. And that's the path that a huge percentage end up taking because lawyer, doctor, finance, lawyer, doctor, finance. Those are the paths, right? Those are the career paths. And not because there's I'm not saying that nobody has a passion for those things. I'm sure that that exists. But I think by and large, the numbers of people that become lawyers and doctors and these other career paths are influenced by the people in their lives that from a young age said, this is a good path for you because they don't know any other way. How could they know that this other way exists that is so much more fulfilling because you get to put yourself in it? There's not a predefined way of being in the data center industry because it's so young as an industry that you get to kind of carve your own way. And it sounds like you as someone who kind Kind of found this secret sauce, got to be that adventurous pioneer. And how do we find the next pioneers out there? I guess that's what we're all trying to do. We all are. And yeah, I think it also has a lot to do with the people that we get to work with. Had I stepped in and not found this amazing community of people that were already here and willing to teach and coach, it wouldn't be what it is. And so we need to, in turn, try to be that for the next generation as we try to welcome them in. We need to be willing to be the teachers and coaches that they're going to need. I think that that's a big part of it as well, is the people network that we have here. Has it always been easy? I mean, you always hear these stories, right? You're in an engineering community with such a traditional kind of male environment. Did you ever see a lot of those challenges that you get a lot of, probably not enough attention, but you hear about them often about challenges being a female coming into a male dominated patriarchal kind of system? There have been times for sure. And I've navigated through those. I can remember a few in particular, one where someone that was my- You could use names. I'm kidding. No, no. (laughs) And this was- Oh, fine, no. (laughs) Who you are. No. (laughs) 
they traditionally didn't work with a lot of women. One peer of mine was from Morocco and was not used to women in the office. And I was one of two. And I faced a lot of pushback until I was willing to work through and outperform. And I still remember after one event that I ran, walking back into the office and getting a standing ovation. And from then on, if I called his name, he would turn around and say, yes, sir. And some people take that the wrong way and say, really, that seems demeaning. And I thought, no, this was the highest form of compliment he knew. Wow. He thought of you as a man. That is in his mind. That's less. You've done it. You're an equal. (laughs) Oh, great. Oh, my God. I think personalities play a role. And some women's personalities have more of a masculine element. But actually, I do think there's a lot to be said about women that do find themselves in this space. I know we talk a lot with diversity. We talk a lot about veterans making good candidates for either operations or construction roles. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. And a lot of us say we want more women in this industry because diversity is good, right? In a nutshell, that's why we want it, because it's a good thing to have. But we don't do as much to talk about why women specifically fit into the framework and the unique skills that they bring. We don't do do much. To, we kind of just say, hey, you pick your path and figure out where you can carve out your niche. And that's great for those who are driven to do that. But if we need to attract more people into our space, we really need to do a lot more of that pairing and coaching and matching to align strengths with the job set. So I'll think through, like, I went to a unique high school even before my college background, and there was a theoretical question that they posed to us once. And and I'll ask you guys, I would love to hear your thoughts. It was... Uh, Hot seat. I have one question, but it's in 96 parts and you have 30 seconds to answer it. (laughs) You're driving a two-seater sports car, pick your favorite, and as you're driving with the hood up, it is pouring down rain. You drive past a bus station. And standing there in the rain at the bus station is your best friend, your mentor, and the love of your life. What do you do? Who do you offer that seat to? I'm going with my best friend. Bill? I'm going with pull over and hang out with them so I can all suffer together. That's a very good approach. And not one I ever thought of. So... And part of what it's theoretical situation was how you answer and how you justify your answer. You can learn there's more than one right response. But the winning answer that someone came up with was you hand your best friend the keys to drive your mentor home and you wait in the rain with the love of your life. And what that taught me early on was how to evaluate all of the resources that I have at my disposal. Because for every one of us, it's more than we think we have. It's more than just the extra seat. It's the car itself. It's the time. It's I can use another person as a resource. And I think women by nature, because there's a lot to manage, like as we were talking about with kids earlier, you have to juggle a lot in a given day. Women are tasked with so much that we're constantly looking for what resources we can rely on. We're constantly looking for the scrap of time that we have to make an extra phone call. We're constantly having to phone a friend to pick up a kid. We're constantly trying to weave together a menu based on equipment, budget, resources we have at hand. And so I think there's a lot we can say that women are wired based on millions of years in communities of hunter-gatherer types. We are wired to do everything we can with the scraps of resources that we have available. And that gives us a lot of a framework for how to navigate different constraints in the industry. We're facing a number of constraints like 
power and space and how to do creative designs for AI. And it's going to take that level of an approach to say, what are all of my resources and how do I get creative with this? And I think women naturally are wired to do right, something. The original multitaskers. Yeah. I think there's a little bit more to it, right? There are men that probably have a similar skill set. I will remind everyone that I was five minutes late to this because I had to put chicken nuggets down for my kids and my neighbor's kids. So there you go. The field is wired like that. <laughs> I, I believe, I believe one of the most important things is what you're raised around and how you were raised and what influences you had would actually give you that skill set. I mean, a simple answer right here is like, okay, so I'm probably more inclined towards my best friend because I know it's got my best interest, right? I mean, like Phil, for instance, like he saved my life. So of course I'm going to pick him over. My, you're, well, you're, my waving, you're waving at the love of your life. <laughs> Yeah, I'll come back for you. <laughs> Sorry, Leslie. Sorry, Leslie. Phil's, I mean, his hair, his hair's going to get ruined in the rain. But I think it's probably circumstantial as well, right? I mean, the point that I'm trying to get across is, yes, I agree and totally wholeheartedly agree, but it's probably not fair to the other gender if you're going to say that that's like a core speciality that women have. There are men out there as well that have the ability just because of the factors that I was raised in a certain way and others aren't, we kind of seem to corner. Like, I mean, I think socially that's the biggest challenge that we've got now is that we actually put titles and corner people because of circumstances and how they were raised. We're like, okay, encourage them to be who they are based on how they grew up and bring forth their core competencies. So an example would be recently we had Alaska Airlines doors come out, right? Or fall apart whilst they were in flight. I think Alaska would say recently we had a Boeing airplane whose doors came out. It happened to be Alaska Airlines. (laughs) So so the CEO of the company issued a statement, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just a door, but we are putting a lot of emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Right. And Elon Musk is like, well, it's not necessarily about diversity, equity, inclusion. Treat people for the way they are, who they are, and bring people based on their skill set and aptitude versus just their gender and or color. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I don't want to cut you off, but I, I agree with you completely. And the diversity areas I like to focus on are the intangible, more like the personalities and skill sets. I think there's a lot more that we could say based on looking at the strength that each candidate brings and working those in based on skill set. These were light examples just to right. say that there are ways that we can approach women and hook women into Yeah. And there's no, there's just no way you look, there's no way you can know by looking at someone, what their background is and how they were raised. Right. So I think inevitably you have to put categories around various ethnicities, various genders, and understand that by and large, there are certain things that one, certain skills might gravitate towards one and gravitate to another. And those skills are relevant to what we do. There's a Ted Lasso line, be curious, not judgmental which he was just quoting from, I don't know, Walt Whitman or one of those. And it's true. It is incumbent upon us certainly to attract everyone to our industry on the basis, not just of DE&I, but on the basis of you might not think that you're a fit for our industry, but these are the reasons why you should want to come in because you have skills that you might not be able to perceive as relevant to what we do, but they are. And then once you get the opportunity to talk to them, obviously you figure out if they're the right person for a particular job and help them follow their passion and not put a square peg in a round hole. No. Absolutely. Our belief is that everyone's made of the same parts. Everybody should be treated equally. Everyone should be given an equal opportunity. It's what people make of it. 
your gender, your race, your color should not define your success in life. You have an equal opportunity and you should be treated as such as well. And I believe the data infrastructure industry is founded, not necessarily founded, probably not the right way to say it, but at the core of it, we value that in some way or should. There are a lot of great people in this space. There's a lot of people that are diverse. I mean, there's a lot of people from different colors and cultures and races and ethnicities and so on and so forth that have excelled. And I believe that this is the only sector that without saying a lot of it, we are doing it because it's sort of like built in our muscle memory. Since we are not like a hundred plus year old sector, we're like three and a half, four decades old, really. So it helps to a degree. So having said that, what are some of the things that we need to still look out for and address as we start growing as an organization or start growing as a sector? What are some of the things that we should put to the forefront and start addressing it today? I think leadership and values. And I recently had written a piece about how each industrial revolution has further impacted education. And there's more to it than that because I spoke very much about standard public education, but really that's bigger than just the technical education, but bigger than practical. It also has a lot to do with the moral education because as we've moved so much outside of the home, for both work and education, all of what we teach in terms of ethics and values and how to live your life, which is bigger than just a faith-based belief system, everything that we are coaching in terms of those values, we're getting elsewhere. We're getting it through our schools. We're getting it through our workplaces. And this is why I believe that leadership is going to matter so much more than it ever has in the past. And so I think that requires managing on strengths. One of the best leaders I ever had, Mr. Sean Farney, had everyone do a strengths finding activity and coaching so that he could manage based on our unique strengths. And I think that some of the best leaders that we'll ever have understand both strengths and differences, and they know how to use those to balance their teams effectively because it's not about race or gender at that level. It's about how people are going to interact, which is where psychology comes in. And it's understanding that the ways that we all process information, the ways we make decisions, it's not always tangential and understanding that they can't walk the same paths to discovery and they have to trust us to make good decisions. They have to trust our intuition and maybe even allow us to make a mistake or two. So that is the only way that we're going to empower people to reach their own new career heights. But it's also how we're going to establish new approaches to the way that we work in this industry, the way that we grow this industry. And that's how we're going to bring new talent in is by explaining to them that their strengths can be utilized, that there is a place for them, regardless of what functional area they serve, be it finance or marketing or engineering or any, any aspect of it, that it's needed. And I think that's how we manage all of it is through the leadership because values that we have to convey, they're not being taught elsewhere and they're bigger than a poster on a wall. They're bigger than a placard on an employee desk and they require consistency and visibility from our people to establish what's important for all of us. And that's how we leave the legacy. That's how we bring more leaders in to leave a lasting legacy. And we coach others so that our reach is very, very far. We have to go about building all of our infrastructure this way. We have to go about building all of our talent pool this way and realize how we play a small role, but it is a far-reaching role, each one of us. I'm listening to what you're saying and ideas start flowing about like where we are now. I'm trying to process. I know I don't have a formal psychological training like you do, but you start thinking about how people interact. 
you've had this kind of weird pendulum over time where mm -hmm. it went from where it was standard for someone to be in a role for years and years and retire in the same role. You're in that role for 30 years. So as a consequence of that, you were thinking about everything that you did on a long-term basis. So it wasn't just about how do I perform for this quarter or this day, but how do I make it so I am creating, like you said, a lasting legacy. And I think we moved to 24-hour news cycle where every day feels like a year and nobody is thinking beyond the day or the week or the month or certainly the quarter. I mean, that's the only thing that really matters, both from an investment perspective and you see it like in terms of resumes that are coming in. People are in roles for eight, nine months, a year at a time, as opposed to 10 years, 15 years at, at a role where they have escalation. I think part of it is a cultural problem and leaders not responding. And part of it is just a societal gig economy where everyone just wants different things and to change things. What are your thoughts on that in terms of you've shifted roles a, a couple of times in your career? What is your sense as to whether the culture that you speak of that CEO or a leader needs to instill redounds down to like the people that work there and wanting to create kind of long-term stickiness of employees, et cetera. There's a lot to unpack there, but go. Well, yeah, <laughs> go unpack it. Well, there is a lot to be said about, you have to have a plan that you're executing on. It can't just be, I'm going to wing it every day. I do like to live by the mantra, make an impact every day. Every day, I need to be able to look in the mirror and say, Well, I, today, check. We're recording this yeah, thing. You're, you're all good. Done. This is my impact okay. today. <laughs> you take the uh, rest of the day off after this. <laughs> I just might. But, and, and so we should. Every one of us, I think, because of that 24-hour cycle, like you said, we do want to sense that each day shrunken, each day mattered, but it only matters if it's moving the needle towards something. If it isn't furthering the information that's available across the industry, if it isn't helping to grow a business or spread a new message or tell the great stories of what you're working on, it hasn't really moved the needle. It, and you have to have somewhere you're headed. So I think that a lot of that comes down to the vision that, that many of us have and that many of our leaders have. Like if I look at DC Block CEO, Jeff Buckhughes, he is another phenomenal- Friend, friend of the show. Yeah, he's, I know he, he has been for some time. And, uh, if I think about his mantra, he really wants people with tenacity to try hard every day. But had his very large scale vision about how to change DC Blocks as a company not been felt even from outside before I joined, they're doing things that no other co-location provider has done before. So it takes having that vision and saying, team, go all in every one of you make this a reality. That's how we measure whether we're making an impact. The fact that it actually happened, that helps, but it requires having a vision that you're progressing towards. And certainly articulating it to the team. I think everybody wants to be part of a team where they, they understand what their role is in accomplishing a vision. And there has to be that shared vision. If you don't believe in what the company's goals are, then it's not the right company for you, right? And I think that you have so many of these kind of ghost ships that are just working through, trudging through every day that don't have that centralized leadership. What is the old phrase? Fish rots from the head. You need to have someone. Is that just a Jersey thing? I, I, I don't know, but I love it. I love, I love the, the expression. I just don't know. I don't know where it originated or if it's even true, physiologically <laughs> speaking. But I love it and I'm going to live with it. Anyone that's listening to this can comment. Tell us if a fish actually does rot from the head. But you're thinking about I whether know. a fish is such a visual person. You were made to be in marketing. 
but, but with, with the right combination as well. I mean, that's the most interesting piece of the whole conversation. It's not just marketing, psychology, and economics, right? So no, it's no, all no. those thoughts and then, and then having that intellect to understand technology and connecting the bits and bytes and communicating in a way that you're not just talking to engineers, you're talking to consumers that are users of those products. So now we're trying to get the next generation. Now you've been kind enough to grace us with your expertise and your vision and your understanding of whether a fish actually does rot from the head or not on the Nomad Futurist Foundation mission. So we would love to hear, like, what is your goal? Like, what Obviously, our initiative to try to be leaders of a foundation that are trying to create a legacy is to get more eyeballs on our industry, more diverse viewpoints, and more people looking at our industry as viable career paths. What is it about that vision, and how do we do it in a way that is going to make a lasting impact? Well, so one thought, I, I was excited the other day, I was coming through some financial market analysis. D data center REITs are now listed as their own category if you trade stocks. So I, I want to throw that out there. This was a great indicator to me that people actually know who we are now. So that was exciting. So I'll, I'll leave you guys to think through that one. But really, my mission specifically, and what I like to say, what I want to do here is to build a world that is connected, sustainable, and equal. And we've covered equality a little bit. I apply that a little bit differently than some, but really it's to build digital infrastructure, champion the people who have built it and who are, give the education and empowerment and tools to those who are going to need to build it moving forward by, by championing all of the experiences and all of the efforts. There's no one size fits all either in the people or in how we need to approach many of the different areas that we need to build towards, like AI, sustainability. There's never a one-size-fits-all. And so diversity of skill set, diversity of approach are all going to matter. And just taking everything that we are learning and sharing it, I think that is the unique area here where I'm trying to fill. Wonderful. So, Melissa, you've got a couple of little kids, and you are in the fastest-growing sector. What are some of the key takeaways and what do you tell them? And if you were given this option to relive all of these experiences again, what would you do differently? I know there's a lot of these questions, but what I'm trying to get is to that whole run of, okay, what's next? What's the hidden secret? What should the next generation be looking at? I think next generation needs to ask, where are we going? What's next? And how do I get there? Too much of it is living in the moment staring at a screen. And I would coach that ability to always be scanning the horizon. What I would tell anyone just starting out in any field is always be willing to rewrite who you are and what you do. Always be willing to realize that one door is closed and another needs to open. And that requires being ready to change and willing to change and open to uncertainty. So I would coach the ability to be resilient the ability to change your mind, the ability to examine all the different opportunities within a career path and think towards the future. Think towards what's next and be willing to transform yourself and anything within your area of influence to be prepared for what's next. Wonderful. I think the key takeaway for me is to continue to scan the horizon. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. This has been immaculate. I can't wait to see you again. Yeah, it's happening you. soon, right? Are we, are we seeing you in Hawaii? Is it happening? Oh, no. I know. You know what? I'm canceling my trip. It's over for me. Get it. I'm done. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. 
currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing as well as your continued support.